Well, I invite you, if you'd like, to turn to John chapter 6. We're going to read verses 35 down to 44, but we're only going to look at verses 35 to 40. Uh, Actually, we're going to look at verses 35 to 42, but kind of save verses 41 down to 51 for next week, Lord willing. So before we read the passage and look at it, let's pray together. Our Father in heaven, we have revealed to us Jesus as the bread of life here, our very sustenance for our being, for our spiritual life. As we read these words and meditate on them, It's our prayer that you would take information, that you take what we say and what we hear, and that you'd cause it to feed our souls so that we might not leave here just knowing more about what the bread looks like and uh, who the bread is, but that we might leave here having been satisfied because we ate our fill. So we pray that you'll do this for your son's sake and by the powerful Holy Spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. All right, John 6 at verse 35. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me and yet do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus answered them, Do not grumble among yourselves. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. As far as the reading of God's word, may he bless it to our hearts and lives this morning. So, beloved congregation of hope and everyone listening to us this morning, we're in the midst of dealing with one of Jesus' seven I am sayings. The saying is, I am the bread of life. There's a lot going on regarding the bread of life, but just to focus on the I am, what Jesus is declaring and one of the things that ruffled the feathers of so many of the Jews who in John's gospel are synonymous with the Jewish leaders and particularly the Pharisees, the scribes, the Sadducees, is when Jesus says, I am, ego me, he's referring to Exodus chapter three, where Moses, before he went off to tell the Israelites that God had sent them and he was gonna deliver them out of Pharaoh's hand, Before he went to them, he asked the Lord, well, when they ask me who you are, what do I tell them, the Israelites and Pharaoh? And the Lord said, basically Moses said, what's your name? Egypt has a lot of gods, they have a lot of names, what's your name? And the Lord says, I am who I am. I will be who I will be, revealing himself. And so when Jesus says, I am the bread of life, this is not the first time he said in the gospel, I am, and it won't be the last. When he says, I am the bread of life, he's saying, look, I'm Jehovah. I'm the God that revealed himself to Moses. And the Jews heard this well, they understood well, Jesus claimed, and it's a claim uh, uh, definitely to divinity. And what Jesus says as well when he says, I am the bread of life, 
is that without Jesus Christ, no one will be satisfied. Uh, bread is basic. Bread is fundamental to the human diet, especially in Jesus' day, and especially to the people he was talking to. Bread was simply a staple. Jesus did not say, I am the ketchup of life. He did not say, I'm the cheesecake of life, or the filet mignon, or the caviar of life, or I'm the cherry on top of life. He didn't say any of that. If Jesus had said those things, we could conclude that Jesus is a nice extra to add to our lives, but he's not fundamental and basic to our life. We might have concluded that, hey, you can live for a lot of things and you can fill your soul up with a lot of satisfying things. And if you want your life to go just a little bit better, add Jesus to it. That's not what Jesus said. I'm the very fundamental, basic part of existence, spiritually speaking. Without me, you don't have existence spiritually. You will starve to death. There's no way to be satisfied. There's no way to quench the thirst without me. So that's what Jesus is saying. If you come to me, you won't thirst anymore. You won't hunger anymore. Without me, you will live a life of starvation and a life of constant thirst down to the depths of your soul. But then this question comes up, well, who eats the bread? I mean, when Jesus puts it this way, saying, I'm the bread of life, why doesn't the whole crowd just jump in? Why doesn't everybody standing around him saying, well, let's eat of you. Like, I, I want, let, let's do this. I believe in you. I trust in you. And we discover, again, I, I think the hard sayings kind of escalate. They start small, but then by the end, these sayings are really hard to chew on. So that you come to later on in the chapter and there's many people walking away saying, this is a hard saying. Well, we're kind of ratcheting up here these hard sayings. And uh, what we discover here in this passage right in front of us is that no one comes to Jesus unless the Father draws him. God has to be involved in this. So we're getting toward that. We'll look at that in a little more detail next week. But I want us to look at these six things this morning from verses 35, kind of down to 42. And uh, they, they are these. All the Father saves will come to Jesus. Uh, 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 let, me, let me say that again. Salvation comes by looking and believing, that first. Secondly, salvation has no minimum standards. Third, you cannot out God's grace. Four, salvation comes, oh, that's where it is. Salvation comes by looking and believing. Number four, we'll look at that down there. Five, all who believe will be resurrected. And then six, Jesus is outwardly unimpressive. So first, all the Father saves will come to Jesus. We'll look at that one first. Uh, I had it misprinted here in my, in my outline. So verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me. Uh, notice just two things from this. First, all that the Father has given to Jesus will come to him. There's no one that the Father has determined will be saved who will not come to Jesus. The Father's written down every single uh, believer's name in the book of life. And everyone whose names are written in that book will come to Jesus. It's just a matter of time. They will get there. There will not be one person too many in heaven, nor will there be one person too few in heaven. Everyone that God has given uh, to be saved indeed will be saved. All that the Father gives me will indeed come to me. And I want us to notice as well, all will come to Jesus. This is kind of where the rubber meets the road personally or experientially, we might like to say. So before the foundations of the world were laid, as we looked at in Ephesians 1, the God had determined who would be saved. But how this works itself out in real-time history, each and every week and month and year as time progresses, 
is those whom the Father has given to the Son to save, to die for, to be raised for, they will come to Jesus in time. Maybe they'll come to Jesus when they're young, before their memories began. Maybe they'll come to Jesus at an old age or right before they die like the thief on the cross. But everyone whom the Father has given Jesus Christ to save will come to the Savior. They may live 20 years a wretched life. They may live 70 years a wretched life. They may live uh, three months a wretched life. But at some point, they will come to the Savior. Take, for example, uh, the story of, uh, of a prison guard uh, the, the, the prison guard was raised in a ordinary family, uh, didn't know the Lord Jesus Christ, had actually got hired on at the prison, and uh, started a family of his own. And one day as he was going to work, a couple of guys named Paul and Silas were thrown into the prison uh, that he was uh, uh, in charge of because they had healed a girl of a spirit of divination, and the owner of that girl is now out tons of revenue, and so they brought Paul and Silas to the the authorities and said, these people are disrupting our town, etc. And they threw him in prison. Paul and Silas are singing. Then there's an earthquake. The jailer wakes up. The doors are open. He's ready to kill himself. And Paul says, wait a minute. Now, nobody in the right mind says that, by the way. <laughs> if the doors are open of the jail, you run. But Paul's not, Paul doesn't care if he goes back in jail. He says, we're all here. Look, just calm down. Don't kill yourself. And he asks, what must I do to be saved? And just Paul tells him the simple gospel. And so that Philippian jailer whose name was written in the book of life during the first, who knows, 30 to 40 years, however old he was, gave no evidence that he was a Christian. Gave no evidence, well, because he wasn't a believer at the time, but gave no evidence that his name was actually written in the book of life. Zero evidence until that day when he came to Christ. So everyone who's elect of God, everyone who's been given by the Father to the Son to be saved, will come to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Second thing I want us to look at is that salvation has no minimum standard. If you look at verse 37 again, whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. Now, if you were listening to Jesus say this as a Jew, a good Jew, a, a very religious person, a fastidious person regarding the law and obeying it, you would have wanted a bit of a qualifying statement uh, uh, to be added to this. Whoever comes to me and is a neat, clean person with not many sins and is really striving hard to obey the law, I will never cast out. But Jesus didn't say that. Whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. And in the whoever is any single human being who is alive. There were prostitutes and tax collectors and thieves and Gentiles coming to Jesus. Surely these would be cast out, the Jews would be thinking. But actually, those are the people that are entering the kingdom of God ahead of the highly religious people, according to Jesus. So Jesus makes it very clear that the worst of the worst, whoever comes to him, doesn't matter what their background is, it doesn't matter what their history is, doesn't mean if, matter if they're humble, doesn't matter if they're proud, even like the scribes and the Pharisees. Think of Nicodemus coming to Jesus. He came to Jesus and eventually believed in Jesus. So whoever comes to him will never be cast out. Whoever believes in him will never be cast out. If you had met the Apostle Paul prior to his road trip when he got into his station wagon and headed to Damascus, if you had met him before then, you might have concluded there is no way this guy's name is written in the Lamb's Book of Life. No way God had decided to save him. And yet, after his incident on the road to Damascus, you meet him, you might be afraid of him because you're not sure he's going to kill you or not as a believer. 
But eventually they came around to see God's done a marvelous work in his life. Look at this. So beloved, salvation has no minimum standard. Uh, Anyone is able to be saved and whoever comes to Jesus, he will not cast them out. This is a hard saying for people who are self-righteous by nature. For the Jews who heard this, this, Jesus is starting to ratchet this up because he's standing in front of a lot of people, a lot of them Jews who will eventually be, well, they're already trying to kill him. But their notion of who gets saved is those who are trying really hard to at least obey the law. That your good deeds outweigh your bad deeds. That knowledge of the Old Testament, studying it well and seeking to obey it is a measure of who's going to be saved. More word, more life is how it was often taught. The more you know the word, the more eternal life you will have. And Jesus says nothing like that. Now, every organization, every institution has a minimum standard, right? Colleges. In order to get in college, you have to have a, probably a certain SAT or ACT. I don't know what they do anymore. Uh, I think probably both of them. Probably have to have a certain GPA maybe. Uh, you can overcome that if, if, you're, uh, uh, if you have good grades or can demonstrate that. A lot of stores say no shirt, no shoes, no service. Again, a minimum standard. Um, we, I remember going to the, the uh, theme park uh, in Branson, Missouri, where they have the roller coasters. I can't remember the name now, but our kids, when they were younger, you had to be this tall to make the ride. There were just tons of frowns because Miriam could take, or our older kids could take it, and some of them couldn't ride, and they were really disappointed. Um, if, you want a, if you want a job, some jobs require a, a minimum degree. You have to have a bachelor's or a master's. If you're part of the military minimum standards, you've got to be able to do push-ups, sit-ups, running, etc. Every organization has a minimum standard. When it comes to the kingdom of heaven, when it comes to God's kingdom, there is no minimum standard. None. There's no qualifications at all. All it is is, I believe. That's it. Regardless of background, regardless of race, regardless of what language you might speak, regardless of where it is we're from, regardless of our income bracket, our earning potential, whatever the case may be. There is no minimum standard to become a Christian. So for those who might think that Christians are a homogenous group of people who have a certain external appearance appearance that meets a certain minimum standard, this is a hard pill to swallow because it means this, that inside the church, which is part of God's kingdom, we'll have to fellowship with people who are going to look very different than us. Now I realize that in this region of America and the world, we are a pretty homogenous people very homogenous, but we are called to have fellowship and to love those people who are very much unlike us. Because again, if anybody can be saved, if Jesus Christ will not kick anybody out of his kingdom who believes in him, he will never cast anybody out. That means we're going to have to fellowship with people who are very much unlike us. There's also no intellectual minimum standards. Look, people who are very unable to process information, intellectually challenged, there is, they are as able to be saved as someone who is the most brilliant person in the world. In fact, maybe even more able because a lot of people pride themselves on their intellect and that's their source of pride. The Jews, so proud of what they knew. Jesus is saying, you search the scriptures, you know them so well, and yet they tell about me and you, you refuse to come to me that you have life. So beloved, there are no intellectual minimum standards. There's no moral minimum standards. So Robert Aaron Lang, the one who's charged with murdering eight people, Uh, in the massage parlors. Uh, He is as fit to be saved as our great moral neighbor who lives next to us and is a great husband or a great wife 
and raising their kids, but who doesn't know Jesus Christ. Again, maybe hard for us to swallow, but no moral minimum standards. A thief on the cross never gave an ounce of repentance up until the moment when he called out to Jesus, whose life was lived likely in shambles, and who was bad enough that the Romans said, just crucify him. That's the verdict. That one was saved. And I wonder how many people stood below there and this day still can't wrap their minds around this. How in the world can he be saved? He took everything I own. He stole from me. He left me wrecked and broke and helpless. And he's going to be in heaven? Hard for the Jewish people to swallow. But again, part of a hard saying that's necessary for us to hear. John Newton, uh, the book is made available uh, graciously. And I don't know if some of you read it, but what's fascinating about that is even the sailors, I mean, sailors are known for cussing. <laughs> John Newton was known among the sailors as even a step above the rest. <laughs> Way worse than all the other sailors. Not just in his speech, but in his conduct. The other sailors thought John Newton was cruel. And yet God says, look, he's mine. He comes to Christ. And when John Newton came to Christ, Jesus said, welcome. Yep, you're in. Did not cast him out. There's no social minimum standard either. You don't have to be well-liked, well-known, or popular. There's just no minimum standards. Every single person who comes to Jesus is loved unconditionally, unconditionally accepted as they are for who they are. I want to mention this briefly. Uh, I don't know if it really applies to us, but I've heard some believers over the years, not from this congregation and not from any church I've actually been a part of, but other believers say, you know what, if an abortion doctor came to Jesus, I just couldn't fellowship with them. They've done things that are just too big in my mind to, to, to fellowship with them and, and conclude that they're a believer. Or uh, if a member of the KKK said that they came to Jesus and life evidenced it, I just couldn't fellowship with them because of that rampant racism and all the hate that they've lived in the midst of. And if a child molester came and said, I believe in Jesus. I just couldn't fellowship. I, I could not at all conclude that they could come to faith on account of what they've done and the sins that they've committed. Embedded in that is at least some bit of pride or misunderstanding about how God's salvation works. Whoever comes to me, says Jesus. This is not the church saying it. The church doesn't say, whoever comes inside of our doors will, will welcome really well. Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I won't cast out. And if someone's good enough for Jesus, then they're good enough for the church. If someone's good enough for Jesus, then they're part of the life of the church as well. Just something to consider. That song, just as I am, though tossed about with many a conflict, many a doubt, fightings within and fears without, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. People just totally torn up inside. I come, and he accepts them. Just as I am poor, wretched, blind, sight, riches, healing of the mind, yes, all I need and thee to find, O Lamb of God, I come, I come. The worst people come, and Jesus welcomes them. So for anybody who doesn't believe, or for those people that we know who don't believe, Jesus never turns anyone away. And beloved, so often it's the case when we evangelize, people will say, if God only knew, if you only knew, you wouldn't be talking to me, but if God knew everything I've done, there's no way he'd accept me. And our response could be something along the lines of this. God already knows. I don't have a clue. 
God already knows everything you've done in all of its ugliness. And he offers you salvation in the Son. And Jesus says, you come to me, you believe in me, you're in. I will never cast you out. The third thing I want us to see from these verses is that verse 39, uh, you cannot outsin God's grace. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me. Look, in this world, there are some relationships which you can count on, but only for a while. The spouse you're married to will eventually die or you'll die before them. Relationships with our kids or with our parents, those relationships will come to an end uh, through death. But there's one relationship which you can depend on fully, and that is our relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. Uh, the will of the Father is that the Son should lose nothing of what he gave Jesus to save and to hold on to. And Jesus guarantees, according to the Father's will, which he came to do and has done perfectly, that I won't lose any of you. And he makes that very clear in John 17. So what, what is being taught here in the very least is that after we come to the Lord Jesus Christ, he will not lose us. He will not let us go. And we can't outsin the grace of God, which is maybe a doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, although it's kind of implicit here. Uh, it'll be full-blown uh, later on, but that's at least something of what Jesus is saying. Now, why is this a hard saying? Because for performance-minded people like the Jews were, what they're hearing is, you know, if you don't measure, if, if you don't, even if you don't measure up and you have a lot of sin remaining in your life, you can still be a believer and have eternal life. That's what they're hearing. And they can't stand that because in their mind, if you aren't measuring up, and you're not pulling your own weight, so to speak, according to the law, then you should be out. You're out. And Jesus is saying, actually, I'm not going to lose any that come to me. Once you're in, you're in. I'm not letting you go. I don't begin something and then end that something later on. The Father's will, my son, I'm going to give you these people to save. Don't lose a single one of them. When they come to you, you hold them tightly. You hold on to them. And Jesus so much sees that that will happen, that even if it means he goes all the way to the cross, all the way to death, he will do everything to make sure that he loses none of us. If it was me, if it was you, by the time we're facing the Father's wrath on the cross, I'd say, Father, I'm, I'm out. I wouldn't have made it that far. I'm not, I'm not in this far. I can't do all of this to make sure that I don't lose any of them. Jesus, fully God, says, I don't care what it takes. My father gave me these people and I will not lose a single one of them at all. There are some Christians who believe, though I don't think they would ever say it, that we're in by grace, but we continue to be saved by our works. That we're in by grace, but the only way God is able to continue to bear with me is if I pretty much stop sinning and become perfect. Beloved, that's not the case. God knows we will continue to sin. He calls us to repent, calls us to trust in Christ, calls us to love his son. We're in by grace and God continues to bear with us. Maybe we're underestimating God's patience when we believe that. I've met a lot of Christians who think that. The sins that I committed before I was a Christian, they don't bother me so much, but the sins I've committed after I was a Christian, how can God continue to love me? because he's that loving, because he's that patient. 
Because what he begins on us, he'll bring to completion. Because Jesus will lose nothing of what the Father has given him. In fact, if we go so far off the deep end and sin, here's what will happen. The Lord will chase us down. He'll come all the way after us no matter where we are. He'll pick us up, the one out of the 99, and he'll bring us all the way back. And everyone's going to throw a big party. That's what the Lord will do if he needs to do to bring us back. The fourth thing I'd like us to notice is that salvation comes by looking and believing, verse 40. This is the will of my Father that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. Now this word look, there's a couple words that John could have used for look. One word look is just to look and see, maybe take a glance at, just notice. But this word for look, is to behold or to gaze at. It means to study, to ponder, to maybe meditate on but it's kind of to, almost to stare at and consider what it is that we're looking at. And I find it interesting that in the middle of one of the most, arguably one of the most God-centered view, uh, chapters of salvation, that Jesus actually mentions that we have to look and believe. So even in the midst of God's sovereign salvation, which will become even more and more poignant several verses later, Jesus is talking about the need to look and to believe at the Son in order to be saved. But just look at him. Look at him entering into the world as a baby. Look at him living perfectly among other people, loving God above all. And when we hear that commandment, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, we think, wow. (laughs) Okay, Lord, baby steps at best. (laughs) That's where I'm getting. Jesus came down here and he loved the Lord as God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength perfectly. We, we hear, love your neighbor as yourself. And we look at our lives and say, I'm not doing that. Jesus loved his neighbor as himself perfectly. Look at him live like that. Nobody in this room lives even anywhere close to that, beloved. Look at him. Look at him dying in your place. Look at, look at his work there in Calvary, bleeding, crying out that God would forgive those who don't know what they're doing. Look at Jesus coming out of the grave, power over death, God the Father, God the Spirit, raising him up out of the tomb because death couldn't hold him. Why not? Because he never sinned. The wages of sin is death. When Jesus came out of the grave, it's a declaration from God. This person never sinned. My son is absolutely perfect. Look at him, consider him, and and trust in him. Look, those who have eternal life are those who are looking to Jesus. Let me say this. If we're looking at our prayer life, in order to be saved, we're gonna live a pretty hopeless life. If we're looking at our sins or how much we're battling against them, how much we're winning the battles against them for eternal life, we're gonna live a pretty hopeless life. If we're looking to how much we know about the Bible or to how high of a quality or how often or how long our devotional time is with the Lord in order to receive eternal life, we're gonna live a pretty hopeless life. Jesus says, you have to look to me You have to look at me, my glory, in order to receive the eternal life. And then believe in him. Again, John's gospel is written so that we can know who Jesus is and believe in him unto eternal life. So we have opportunities all throughout the gospel to look at belief. But belief is, for sure, we have to know the historical facts about what took place. Jesus died on the cross and rose again. We have to say, yep, that's important for me. And then we also have to make this leap where we jump in and say, I trust that what Jesus did for sinners is indeed for me. So are you looking at Jesus 
Are you believing in him? Because everyone who looks and believes in him is saved. The fifth thing I want us to notice, and then we'll come to the conclusion. All who believe will be resurrected to eternal life. Verses 39 and 40. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. And then verse 40, I will raise him up on the last day. So the last day is when Christ will come to raise us from the dead and take us to be with him in glory. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 4, uh, Paul puts it this way, the Lord himself will descend from heaven with the cry of command, with the voice of an archangel, and with the sound of the trumpet of God, and the dead in Christ will rise first. And in 1 Corinthians 15, this, in Christ shall all be made alive, but each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming, those who belong to Christ. So everyone who believes in the Lord Jesus Christ, everyone whom God the Father has given the Son to save will be resurrected on the last day to eternal life just because they believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then finally, one last point, and we'll spend just a little bit of time here. Jesus is outwardly unimpressive, verses 41 and 42. So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is not this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How does he now say, I have come down from heaven? In this little paragraph of verses that we read, this may be about the hardest saying. Uh, they simply could not get their minds around the fact that this person standing in front of them, whose breath they could smell if they wanted to, came down from heaven. That's what they couldn't wrap their minds around. If Jesus was sitting on Herod's throne in Jerusalem, they might be able to wrap their minds around it. If Jesus had gone to Rome and told Caesar to get off the throne and he was sitting there, they might have been able to wrap their minds around it. If Jesus had told the Jews, pick up your swords, let's go crush the Romans and enjoy some political freedom, they might have been able to wrap their minds around it. But Jesus is standing right in front of them. They know his parents they saw his upbringing to whatever extent, working in the carpenter shop. And then he's just left those humble beginnings and they say, no way did you come from heaven. In the minds of so many Jews, divinity is measured by enormity, by impressivity, by majesticness. And they have someone standing right in front of them who's doing tremendous signs, but his appearance isn't enough to tip the scales for them. That's the scandal of the cross for the Jews. They just can't wrap their minds around the fact that the God who created the heavens and the earth could come down here in the form of a baby and die on the cross for wretched people when we think God only saves the really good people. Who saved you, beloved? A lowly baby in a manger. The Son of Man is the one who saved us. He was born to a no-name woman in a no-name town, married to a no-name man who did carpentry work. The one who saved us was an itinerant preacher who had amassed a total retirement account of zero, had no place to lay his head, had nothing but the clothing on his back, which was divided, uh, cast by, by lots which were cast. We are saved by a teacher, a rabbi, who when the hard times hit, his own disciples left him. I mean, these are the most loyal people. The disciples of a rabbi are the most loyal people. The rabbi's life got a little hard 
and the disciples are gone. Not just Peter, but all the disciples eventually fled from him, we're told. They all left, so Jesus is standing all alone. Our Savior is one who, when asked to give a defense for himself, said nothing. In all of his power, all of his majesty, he's the word. He didn't speak to get himself off. Our Savior is the one that the Roman military dressed up in purple, put a crown of thorns on his head, mocked him, spit at him, made him look like a complete fool. And as if that wasn't enough, our Savior is the one who, about 2,000 years ago, if you walked just outside of Jerusalem's gates, there was quite a crowd that had gathered. There were three people that were hanging on beams of wood. Our Savior is the one hanging right in the middle. There were two criminals, one on each side of him, He's the one right in the middle making all these claims and crying out. That's the one who saved us. That's our Savior. If God in all of His glory came and stood right in front of you and looked you eye to eye and face to face, would you be scandalized by it? And would you fall down, look at Him, believe in Him, and worship Him? Because he did. About 2,000 years ago, God in all of his glory came down to this earth and he looked at people, he stood right in front of them. And you know what a lot of them were? They were scandalized. They said, no way are you good enough to be my savior glorious enough. Do you see how ordinary and yet how extraordinary the Lord Jesus Christ is? Do you see how incredible he is? Do you see how condescending God is? He'd come all the way down and meet us where we are. Look us eye to eye and face to face. There's only two responses to that. You can either say, there is no way. You're a fake. Or you can say, I can't believe you could come down this far. Why are you coming all the way down to a wretched sinner like me? How can you as the creator stoop this low and even go to death? How can you pull this off? I'm in. I believe. This is amazing. Thank you. What's your response? What are you doing with the Lord Jesus Christ? Let's pray.